0: As we continue this series of studies on holding things loosely, things that God exhorts us to loosen our grip on, things that we're tempted to hold firmly. And this morning I want us to think about holding our past loosely. I just want to mention, while I'm thinking about it at the beginning, so I don't remember this at the end like I did last week, three booklets that I just want to encourage if you. Um, At the end of this, want more information, want to do some more reading, Uh, Steve Vyers, Redeeming Your Painful Past. Um, Steve has written a much longer book, Putting Your Past in Its Place, Um, both excellent works, Um, obviously the the brief version and the extended version, and then Robert Jones' Bad Memories Getting Past Your Past. Uh, The little booklets are ones that we generally have here at the office, we usually have them out in the foyer, but... Obviously, we're not, uh, things aren't always being distributed as easily these days, but if you need to get a hold of a copy of one of these, let Stuart or I know um, so that we can give you the opportunity to, to read one of those if you'd like more on that. All of us have a past, history, memories, the things that, that have influenced us in some way, who, who raised you, where did you grow up, what failures, what disappointments, what traumas did you experience? What accomplishments are in the past? What habits did other people model that you picked up along the way and developed as your own habits? And we could go on and on. Different things that happened in the past that have influenced us in one way or another. And here in Genesis 45, we're going to start here and bounce around a little bit as we've been doing. But I I think through the story of Joseph, we get a little bit of help in understanding our past and seeing in his example, some biblical methodology, if you will, for putting our, our past in its right place. The story of Joseph begins in chapter 37 of Genesis. We meet him as a 17-year-old. He and his brothers are shepherds. They are caring for Jacob's many flocks. They are looking after the sheep. And unfortunately, Jacob makes no secret of the fact that Joseph is his favorite, that Joseph is his favored son and so the the younger of the sons has this sort of lofty place his father loves him because he is the child of his father's older age and he makes that clear and joseph also speaks about dreams that he has and in one of those dreams it, it, he essentially foresees his family bowing down to him in some way that's the interpretation that comes from it that his brothers and his mother and his dad are in some way bowing down to him so No surprise if you were a sibling or you have children that there was a little bit of jealousy that arose in that family. A little bit of hard feeling and bitterness that arose against Joseph and it develops into anger and it moves to the point that the brothers plot to get rid of him. One of the brothers talks just enough sense into them that they don't kill him, but instead what they do is they they sell Joseph, they, they treat him as a piece of commodity, and there are some foreign travelers coming through, and they sell Joseph to whatever life lies ahead of him. They no longer care, he is gone, they go back and tell Jacob that he has been destroyed by some wild animal. Turns out, we know the story, he was taken to Egypt. And over the course of the next 13 years or so, he is, he is first made a slave there. The, the purchase of Joseph makes him into a slave, and to a household servant. And, and over the next 13 years, he goes through a number of harsh experiences, not the least of which is being falsely imprisoned for something that he did not do, and then being forgotten in prison. There were, there were folks in prison who understood his story and who could have offered help and who got out and who forgot him and left him behind. And so it One point, finally, Joseph is called on to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. The the ruler of Egypt has a troubling dream, wants somebody to interpret it, and it is remembered that, that Joseph just may have some ability here, and so that is what leads to his release from prison. Ultimately, puts Joseph in the place because of the way he responds to the Pharaoh's dream that he is essentially what what we in sort of D.C. circles would think of as Pharaoh's chief of staff. You know, he's kind of the the man who makes sure that everything is is done the way that it's supposed to be done. He's given great power. At age 30, Joseph is serving in the court of the king of Egypt. About nine years later, it is two years into this tremendous famine. Famine that had been foreseen in Pharaoh's dream that, that Joseph had helped him see. And so that Famine they had prepared for because of the wisdom of Joseph to, to use the seven good years of plenty to put food away. So nine years later, they're, they're two years into this famine. It has spread throughout the region. It has gone into the region where Jacob and his family are. They are affected by it and running out of food. And so they, they decide to go to the, the only nation they know that seems to have a stockpile that somehow prepared for this. And so Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to go and see if they can find food there. When, when Joseph is sold to the traders, the, the, the brothers have no idea really where he's going to end up at that point, whether he will live or die, what his future holds. As I mentioned, they, they go back to their father and lie and say, well, he was killed by some wild animal who dragged him away. And so there's no body. It's, it's a tough break, but he's gone. And that's the end of it. So now it is 20 years later and unbeknownst to them, they are standing in the court That is Joseph's court at this point, and they are bowing down to the the governor of Egypt, to this guy who was in this ruling position to buy grain from him, and they are fulfilling the very dream that Joseph had described when he was with them when he was 17. There were several encounters, if you know the story in Genesis, between the brothers and Joseph. They didn't yet recognize him. Obviously, he's gone from being a teenage boy to now being a grown man, and 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 they are not recognizing who he is. He finally reveals himself to them, and the ESV says they were dismayed. That's a nice way of saying their, their hearts were leaping inside of them. They were troubled. It's, it's one of those moments where you almost could hear the audible gasp from the brothers in the room at that point because they now realize that they are standing before and asking for food from the one who is the brother that they sold into slavery. And so if you look at Genesis 45 with me, verse 4, I want you to watch what Joseph says to them. They are dismayed. And Joseph, verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God... He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. It's one of the the first times in Scripture that we come across a... A testimony. We are familiar with what testimonies are. When we do baptism services, people give their testimony. They tell of how God redeemed them, how life, uh, what it was like before Christ, how Christ saved them, and how he is now transforming them. And so we're used to what testimonies are in scripture. This is one of the first pauses for one of these testimonies to stop and say, let's look back at something. Moses does it, Paul does it, David does it. Often they they go back to circumstances and events in their their lives that that were troubling, that at the time were maybe even horrible, and and now in, in hindsight they are looking back and they are saying, now we see God was there, God was in this, and they're giving testimony that through that difficult season... God was providing for them. Each of us has a past. Tend to be two extremes. Most of us are probably somewhere in the middle on this, but the extremes in in considering the past and its influence on our lives uh, run the gamut from it is everything to it is nothing to that the past is sort of... um, all-encompassing and it it captures you and holds you and it's hard to break free from to the past is is nothing and you shouldn't dwell on it. One psychiatrist wrote, memories make us who we are. They create our worldview in ways we hardly realize. The the way it feels to be you, your hopes, expectations, and fears are all built on what you've experienced before. In, In that view, the past is powerful, often in unconscious ways, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to even struggle to break free from that. The opposite view is that, that yes, the past is, is memories, and therefore, if you don't think about those things, it's, it, it's done with. You just forget about it, especially the hard stuff. You don't think about the failures or the hurts or the suffering along the way, and if I don't think about it, then I've disarmed it, and we should be living in the now, I have nothing to do with the past. How about as believers in Jesus Christ? How does God's word help us to not either be in the grip of the past or to be gripping it too intensely? And I'm going to give you four ways this morning, starting here in Genesis 45. As believers, we we start in our dealing with the past by confessing that God was sovereign over our past, that God was sovereign, God ruled over our past. Joseph knew the deliberate evil act that his brothers had done. He, he wasn't trying to mask that or pretend that it didn't happen. In fact, the first thing he says to them is, I am your brother whom you sold into Egypt. That is a, that is a condemning statement if you're the brothers, because you now realize that the first thing out of his mouth is, I'm your brother, the one that you sold into Egypt. And so he's very aware of what they've done, and he's not seeking to excuse them. But he also explains that he saw their actions very clearly under the sovereign hand of God, that they were not acting independently of God. And and he uses the most explicit of terms to affirm God's rule here, that, that what happened... What they did to Joseph in his past was not some wrong turn in God's plan, that God had this, this really great plan and somehow his brothers were able to, to thwart it. On the contrary, Joseph says, I don't want you to be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve life. And then he said it again, as you go through this passage, it's, it's startling when you look at how many times he says essentially the same thing in this passage, perhaps dealing with the fact that his brothers are a little shocked and a little frightened at that moment. So he's, he's making sure they get the main point here because then he says it again, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And then just in case they weren't listening, it's not you who sent me here, but God and then finally, he concludes and says, it is God who made me ruler over the land of Egypt. It was a harrowing event that a 17-year-old went through. He wasn't just captured by traitors. His own brothers threw him in a pit to kill him and then decided, well, we'll just sell him and we'll get rid of him that way and, and we'll assume that he's dead from this point forward. And yet... Joseph's perspective on this is God is in control. God was sovereign even over the past. He didn't suddenly become sovereign because now I believe in God's sovereign rule. He was still ruling at that time. We've done this before, so I won't take the time this morning to, to to make a biblical case for the sovereignty of God, but it is very clear in Scripture that God rules His universe, that the Creator does as He wills, and that He affects that rule through you and I, that He carries out His will. For us who are believers, we know that He accomplishes what He deems to be good for us, that He accomplishes good, and He brings glory to Himself, and and we can worship Him for that, but we must Confess his sovereignty. He is perfect in power and goodness and justice. His plan is right. And so when we look back on our past suffering, past abuse, past hurts... We don't do ourselves any favor by trying to somehow get God out of that. Somehow say, well, he, he couldn't have been in any way involved in that. We, we've got to somehow absolve God of, of, of all of this, of having a part. And so somehow it must have been something he couldn't, he couldn't affect in any way. He couldn't change. We, we're not helping ourselves in that case because we're essentially now leaving ourselves with an impotent God who, when he de- declares his will, it, it, it then becomes only a, a possibility, he may or may not be able to accomplish his will because if he can't stop certain evil from happening, then, then, then apparently he isn't able to affect his full will in some way. God would be like you and I, planning, stepping forward, hoping for the best, not knowing what tomorrow morning, not knowing what this afternoon is going to bring when we walk out of here. Joseph did not ever suggest that, listen, you guys, God had this amazing plan. and You guys just threw an entire wrench in it. You you just completely messed it up. Instead, he looks back at all of it. Their abandoning of him, their selling of him, the the imprisonment falsely. And and through it all, he sees God sovereignly at work to accomplish the purpose of preserving a remnant of Jacob's line, of God's people. The, The dream... From 20 years ago, from that point through when he now stands before his brothers, Joseph just sees one line of God at work in all of this. God accomplishing his purpose. God sending me here. Your your greatest disappointments, the things that you look back on that were your worst days, Your, your greatest achievements, the things you look back on that were your best days, We're all in the good, wise, sovereign plan of Almighty God, accomplished for your good and for his glory, for his ultimate glory in your life. Now, it's just one thing that that Joseph has, and and, and sometimes we read passages like this and we go, well, wait, Joseph has something here that I don't fully have. Joseph has sort of a a pretty clear road map, by which to look back down the road and, and look at the past and, and now be able to say, okay, so now with this famine and the storing of the food, I get it, I see why he did all this. And, and, and for some of you, there are things that have happened in the recent past and in the distant past that you can't quite sort out as to what God was doing in that and what the purpose was. Remember this, first of all, it was, it was 20 years From the point of them selling him to the end of the story. And and of that, the, the first 11 years at least were difficult for Joseph. Uh, That there, this is not, we, we read this and go from one chapter to the next and it's all in about two days worth of our, our daily reading time. And it all seems pretty quick that Joseph went from a a, a confused 17 year old being sold into slavery to the the ruler over Egypt and, and, and seeing it all so clearly, but it's a long stretch. It's 20 years of his life and it's 11 years of just hardship and the imprisonment and the suffering and the times when perhaps he wondered Perhaps he asked and yet, in faith, trusted. There was a long stretch in there when Joseph could not possibly have foreseen what all God was intending in in bringing him to Egypt. Whether or not we we get all the answers, whether or not the picture comes into full focus, God is still sovereign. And, And where there are past triumphs or tragedies, we can still rest in that. Where there are past triumphs, we can thank him because they are are acts of his grace. And where there is past suffering, we can know with certainty that he had a good purpose in working out his plan. If your parents were miserable, if some other trusted family member mistreated you in some way, if that first marriage blew up and and caused all kinds of wreckage, if you made choices that had fallout in your life for years to come, God was not helpless. He is not responsible for your sin. He is not guilty of the sin of other people, but his hands were not tied. What he brought into your life, what he allowed you to experience, what he is allowing you to walk through even today are part of his good wise, just, loving plan for your life. And we are called to rest in that and to believe in that and to confess that God was sovereign over our past. So that's where we start. Second, second thing, acknowledging that God has built the principle of sowing and reaping into his creation. Talking about holding the past loosely. So here's another one. God has, has built into creation the principle of sowing and reaping. What that means very simply is there may be things from your past that continue to have ramifications even into today. There are consequences for actions. And, and, and there may be things from, from, from past doings on your part or someone else's part that, that may still carry on in the present and even into the future. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 is, is talking largely about salvation, specifically about salvation. But let me read it because I think the principle is here. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He, he's very specifically talking about eternal judgment. Paul's making the point here as he's trying to clarify the gospel to the churches in the, the region of Galatia that a person cannot reject God's grace and spurn the gospel of Jesus Christ and get away with it. Cannot You can't just do what you want to do and live as you want to live and one day stand before God. We, we, we see this. More and more in our culture where there's this, this ongoing struggle with how, how do I submit? How do I, how do I deal with authority? And more and more, the attitude is just, I don't, I don't want authority. I don't want to be told what to do. God says God will not be mocked. We cannot stand before God and say, I've, I've done as I pleased, and I'm never going to answer for it. Scripture is filled With reminders that reaping and sowing is a God-given principle that is found throughout our lives. Our words and our actions have consequences to them. By the sweetness of God's grace and and, and the forgiveness in his gospel, we we are saved, we are redeemed. But that does not automatically cancel out the consequences that come from things we've said or done writer in Proverbs elaborates on this in a number of instances. In typical father-to-son sort of language, there's a lot of statements in there about, you do this, and this is what's likely to happen. Here are the consequences for your actions. I want to give them to you so you think about them. And so in Proverbs, there's a number of these. He's talking about sexual sin in Proverbs 6, and he asks some rhetorical questions. Can a man Carry fire next to his chest, and his clothes and not be burned. Are there not consequences for that? Of course. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Even mind over matter, sort of walking on hot coals. There's still going to be there's still going to be some physical ramifications to all that. And then there's just numerous instances. A slack hand causes poverty. A babbling fool will come to ruin. A cruel man hurts himself. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. He who opens wide his lips, in other words, talks a lot, comes to ruin. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing. I think you get the idea, right? This is just a sampling of the proverb saying, if this becomes the pattern of what you do, then expect this as a consequence. This is what will happen when you continue to do this. And and God has has decreed a just and ultimate punishment for, for sin The the wrath of God is poured out against those who rebel against him. And that punishment though was absorbed in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so that's what you and I place our hope in and our trust in that Jesus Christ died for our sins to take that ultimate punishment. And therefore we are forgiven. And yet it is still God's reaping and sowing design. That means there are still consequences for our actions. Even that ultimate forgiveness, even our repenting and and the forgiveness that comes with it, that that sin may still yield trouble. It it may still come back and and there is fruit that is born by our actions. As an example, think about David. David is described in scripture as a man after God's own heart. A guy who who wants to, desires to worship God. God, to lead his nation and following after God and striving to be obedient. And then we know the scene where David sins mightily against God, commits grievous sexual sin against Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah. And when the prophet Nathan comes to David, who, who, who somehow sort of blots this all aside and just keeps carrying on somehow in his sin, is finally confronted by the prophet Nathan. Nathan says to him in 2 Samuel 12 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So it's God's judgment on a man who was a man after his own heart. A man who is continued to be recognized throughout the New Testament as part of the, the messianic line and who is who's honored in, in that way, rightfully so, but is ultimately understood as being one who was delivered by God. It's God's work in him, and it is God's judgment of him. David acknowledged his sin. He pleaded for forgiveness for this sin. You can read it in Psalm 51, his confession of his sin, and he pleads to God. And yet, there were devastating consequences that followed David's life from that point on. The child who was conceived in that sin dies despite David's praying and crying for that child's life. David's son Amnon commits terrible sin after this, and he is put to death by a brother, Absalom. Absalom then rebels against David and against David's king, and Absalom is killed by colleagues of of David against David's wishes. Absalom is put to death. His family, after this sin, spirals into tragedy. And as Nathan said, the sword did not depart from his house starting at at that moment when David decided to exercise a prerogative as a king that was out of bounds and sinful and evil in taking Bathsheba the way he did. Be really clear here. I I, I want you to see this as an example from David's life where he experienced consequences. This is not intended to be a formula, and Nathan does not teach it as a formula. So it's not to say that any child's death or the, the passing of a loved one then should automatically be construed as some punishment from God. But what happened to David was a fulfillment of the reality of the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. And it was made clear to him because of what you have done, because of the the standing you have in the community. And because people look to you and because of what you've done as a leader, you can expect a great price to be paid for this, David. And David paid dearly in consequences. Our past may yield consequences. John Piper put it this way, he says that consequences, even for sin that's been forgiven, God gives them in order to demonstrate the exceeding evil of sin, to show that God does not take sin lightly, even when he lays aside his punishment, and to humble and sanctify the forgiven sinner. It is in God's kindness that he teaches us. As Hebrews twelve six says, he, he disciplines the one he loves, and so the consequences are God's Kindly helping us to see, to become aware of the the reality of our sin and his holiness and, and to run from these things, to flee from them. There's one other thing that. That a believer in Jesus Christ should, should take from experiencing consequences of sin. And we all can give testimony to some consequences of sin that we have experienced or are experiencing somewhere along the way. If there's one other thing that you take away, it should be thanksgiving that we are not facing the ultimate consequence for our sin. It should be great gratitude to God. That despite the things I've done and the things i paid for and the consequences I faced, I will stand before my maker in the righteousness of Christ, fully undeserving and yet saved by his grace and not receiving the ultimate punishment that I deserve because I've been rescued by Christ. Brings us to a third way, holding our past loosely. Acknowledging God's sovereign over the past, acknowledging sowing and reaping consequences. Third, humbly remembering our past before God saved us. Not not dwelling on this, but not forgetting it either. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9, humbly remembering our past before God saved us. Scripture is very clear that apart from the gospel, you were lost in sin, you are dead in sin, you are blind in sin. And consequently, that, that is your nature, it is hostile toward God, and so your behavior reflects that. Your behavior is the, the function of your nature. So when we talk about a person's will, that will is, is responding to that nature which is hostile to God. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, it's really something of a history book. This is sort of Moses' parting words, if you will, to the Israelite nation, having led them from out of Egypt, he now summons them to rehearse again with them God's law and to speak to them again truths of the past, how God delivered us, how God God has worked amongst us, and to remind them of in spite of us, in spite of the things that we have done. And so in Deuteronomy, he He summons them, and part of what Moses does is is he wants to make it very clear to them, do not ever think that you have somehow earned God's favor. When I'm long gone, don't you ever sit here and think, well, when you look at all of the other nations and how terrible they are, now we can see why God picked us, because we are really a pretty good people. We're we're better than all the rest. And and Moses is saying, no, no, don't, don't ever think that. And so Deuteronomy 9, verse 6 Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. That is is not exactly a positive message, at least in human terms of, of, I want to just build you all up and make you feel really good about yourselves. And instead, Moses says, listen, God is awesome and he is mighty and he's holy and he's given us his law. and, and, And if there's one thing you need to remember, you've been fighting him all along the way. You've been rebelling against him. Don't forget who you were apart from God's grace and redemption. Don't somehow think that we're, we're special and, and he saved us because of just how wonderful we were. You were no better or worse than the rest, he says. You were rebels against God. So humbly remember your past before God delivered you. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's a bunch we could spend time on in, in just those first verses of Ephesians 2, But one thing that I just want to make sure you see is that not only were we dead in sin, this is prior to the gospel coming and saving you. Not only were you dead in sin, but your life was consistent with that nature Your behavior, your outlook on life, your thoughts, your words, your actions would have naturally been consistent with that condition. Because we were dead in sin, we did what the world does. We follow Satan's lead. We live to satisfy the the cravings of our flesh and to carry out the evil that our heart desires. That's that's what we are apart from Christ. The the humbling part of it's even in that that God saves us. It's in that hostile state that, that God pulls us out of that and, and redeems us. But, but I, I, I say that in particular to say that if, if your life was strewn with wreckage before Christ, and, and there are things you're not proud of, and there are people who suffered because of things you said, your sin, things you did, then know this. This is who you were. This is what it is to live apart from Christ. That's not an excuse. It's not to excuse your sin. It is to explain it. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath. wrath. And so what did we do? We pleased the flesh. We did what we wanted to do. We satisfied our own cravings. And so if if you're looking back and you're looking at that season, however long it was before God saved you, and you're mourning stuff in there, understand that... Again, it's not an excuse, but, but you were doing what your, your nature was inclined to do at that point, And yet God saved you from out of that. And he has redeemed you. If anything, we should be grateful that by God's providence, we didn't make a bigger mess out of things in those days before Christ saved us. We could probably go back and think of all the ways we could have made it worse. And, and, and I would just add for, for those of you who have those relatively nonchalant testimonies, I always love when people come distort our eye with their baptism testimony, and they're like, eh, it's kind of boring. You know, I received Christ at an early age. I trusted in him when I was a child. And I don't really have any big heroic story here going from, you know, killing people on the streets to, to, to being saved. Well, praise God you don't have that. I, I, that. That's our first response when we get those testimonies is, wow, that, that should make you so thankful that God did that, that he spared you all of that stuff. That others have have struggled with. Humbly remember your past before God saved you. That's third. So that, number four, you can be rejoicing in the fact that your past does not define you today because of Christ. Your past does not define who you are today because of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter six, I love this passage. 1 Corinthians six, starting in verse nine. And remember, again, he's writing to a troubled group of believers in Corinth. These folks are struggling right now. And Paul is is approaching them with the humble heart of a brother. I am coming to you as one you profess to be believers. I'm going to take you as such, and I am going to preach to you on those terms. And so he says to them, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality sexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you. We We should have that in our hearts, that line. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Every now and then we just need to take a moment and and go back to 1 Corinthians 6.11 and pause on that. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You were, he says, maybe you were bound up in in sexual sin. Maybe you were overwhelmed with addiction. Maybe you were the kind of person who was just always entangled in a web of lies because you were dishonest. Maybe you were just one of these arrogant people who constantly was, was battling with other people around you. Such were some of you, but you were washed of your sin. When he says you were sanctified, he means that holy God took you from out of that and made you his own. He now sets you apart as his treasured possession. And you were justified. You who with all of that now stand before God in the, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in the right standing put on you by, by him because of what Jesus Christ did. He says that, that's what you were. Yes, you and I still struggle with temptation, but we we are no longer defined by this. You are not that person. You were washed. You were set apart. You were justified. You are no longer who you were. You are not defined by the things you did, nor even the suffering you experienced at the hands of others or the person you were before Christ. When Satan throws accusations against you and says that, hey, who are you to think that you have any standing with, with God that you don't deserve that? When you are overwhelmed by feelings of guilt or shame from your sin or, or shame from in sin inflicted by other people. Come back to this. The answer is in the truth of where we stand right now in Christ. We belong to him. We have been rescued by him. If you are trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ, God sees you today as his precious child in Christ. It's amazing. That's that's why Paul in, in 1 Timothy 1 is able to say, man, look at my life. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And in fact, I was arrogant about it. I, I, I just, what I despise, I despised. And I didn't care. And yet he says, I received mercy. The grace of God overflowed for me. That is the truth that slams the door on the guilt and shame of your past and mine. That he has overflowed his grace on us. So, so I don't need to sugarcoat my, my past sin. I don't need to blame shift about it. I don't need to fall into the trap of feeling like I can't be forgiven for things that I have done. If you are holding on to some past failure that you have confessed before the Lord, then take him at his word that he has provided for you the forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. And he promises in forgiving to not bring that up against you anymore. That, that's, what, that's what forgiveness is. It is a vow that I will not continue to hold this against you. I will not keep throwing it back at you. And That's where you and I stand if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. That means God, God has given you that, that hope and that promise. Flip side of this, just say it briefly, because we, we, we typically think in terms of disappointments and despair and failures and suffering, but, but you may be holding on to accomplishments in your past, as if your life was defined by those moments, that, that everything was in this, this moment of success, this, this achievement of mine sort of defines who I am. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says that, that statement that we tend to think of when we talk about the past. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That, that passage, Philippians 3, 13, 14, tends to get used in, in the mindset that says, oh, the, just, just forget the past. Just like Paul, just forget about everything that's behind and just press on. That's not really what Paul is saying in that context because if you look at what he's doing in Philippians chapter 3, he's just gotten done giving his resume, his, his Judaism resume, his priestly, pharisaical resume, and he's just walked through how prior to Christ, man, Paul's saying I was a rock star of religious Judaism. I was doing it right. I was observing the law just like a good Pharisee. I was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I persecuted Christians. When it came to religious Judaism, Paul could say, ha, I was the man. And so when he comes to this point in Philippians chapter 3, when he says forgetting what is behind and pressing forward, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about all the stuff that he somehow thought were achievements and accomplishments and stuff to his credit that he was claiming credit for prior to Christ. And he's saying, that's the stuff I realized. I don't, I don't want that. I was trusting in myself. I was not trusting in God. I, I, anything that was out of just this sort of self-centered, arrogant trust in self, I want to push that aside. Ultimately, all that really mattered, he said, was knowing Christ, knowing the person and the work of Christ. So be careful about holding tightly even to past achievements if you, if you allow them to define who you are. Our past is real. Our memories are powerful. And there are times when shame and regret may seem overwhelming. Those things should not hold us if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, nor should we cling to them. By the grace of God, he has brought us to where we are today for the purpose of glorifying Him in this moment, and worshiping Him now and, and celebrating the forgiveness that He has given us in Christ. I'm going to encourage you this week to read Psalm 77. Asaph, and I'll just finish with a couple comments from Psalm 77, and we'll be done. He starts Psalm 77. This is one of these traditional psalms in the sense of he starts seven, Psalm 77 saying, I am in the day of trouble. <laughs> I am crying aloud to God. I am seeking God and and it is bad, and and I am in trouble. And he goes on to declare, and at one point he says, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Here's Asaph, and he feels alone, and he feels overwhelmed. And then in the middle of the psalm, after outlining how terrible he feels, Asaph wrote, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. You are the God who works wonders. You with your arm redeemed your people. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. There's Asaph teaching us. In those times when we are feeling overwhelmed by despair and the past seems like it is gripping and haunting us and shame is there, there it is. Our hope to not get trapped in that is ultimately to remember the greatness of our God. To rest in the one who is sovereign over our past, who has rescued us from out of our sin, and who holds our future. And so we today can rejoice in his presence at his mercy at the one who promises to not hold our sins against us anymore. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word speaking to places where we so often find ourselves struggling with thoughts, with shame, with guilt, with questions. Father, I I pray this morning that um, your word would accomplish what, what you intended for it to accomplish, that, Whatever was helpful, truthful, whatever was useful for the sake of your kingdom that you would apply to the hearts of your people. Father, I pray that you would, you would help us to be a people who would, would, as we look back at our past, not simply see a string of incidents or a run of memories, but we would see you working guiding, directing, leading us to this time and this place and to your word at this moment, that we might recognize that you are the God, the one who is Lord over yesterday, today, and over our eternal future. Father, we in our limited, frail human capacity, it's hard for us to Hard for us to fathom. A God who rules over the universe in this way that all that he decrees comes to pass. And yet we believe this is what is taught in Scripture. This is what you have declared. And you have coupled with that your, your plan of redemption to redeem a people that you have loved and called to yourself. Father, thank you that in your might and sovereign greatness, that we as undeserving sinners could find hope and redemption and peace. Help us as we navigate this week, as we encounter people who are perhaps struggling with their past, with memories, with hurts. Help us to be able to speak truth to them, to encourage them. Ultimately, help us to be lights for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we, like Asaph and like Joseph, may we ultimately be able to, by your Spirit's enabling, look back and say, I, I see God's mighty hand over this. I see his wondrous deeds. I see in the midst of, of all the stuff, the hardship, the suffering. I see a gracious and loving God who has brought me to himself and holds before me a glorious future in his eternal presence. Lord, we pray all these things in our Savior's name. Amen.